0: the heading that my Bible gives the gospel lesson for this morning from Luke 13 is repent or perish. Just thought I should warn you in advance. That's how I know that we are still in the season of Lent. But I think as you will see, there is more to this text than a straightforward turn and burn call to repentance. So with that in mind, I invite you to listen now for the word of the Lord. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He being Jesus asked them. Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent you will all perish just as they did. Aren't you glad I warned you? (laughs) Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and still I find none. Cut it down, why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The scene here is only found here in Luke's gospel. We don't have any extra biblical uh, resources that speak to the event that this anxious group of people is worried about. Jesus is speaking to this group of people, these folks who have recently learned about the suffering of some of their fellow Galileans at the hand of Pilate. Jesus knows what they are thinking. It's, it's what we all want to know when something bad happens. Why? They must have done something to deserve it. There must be a reason. In the ancient world, it was often thought that suffering was tied to something that you had done. So anytime something bad happened, you must have deserved it. There must have been a reason. And Jesus' response is not exactly what you would call pastoral. You might have expected him, for sa- him to say, no, they didn't do anything wrong. They- these were good people. But he doesn't say that, does he? He basically says that no one is good. Everyone is equally broken. Everyone is equally sinful. And bad things happen to everyone, whether they deserved it or not. So no, they didn't do anything to deserve their suffering. Again, not really the word of comfort I think they were coming to Jesus to get. But he makes his point clear. Sin is the, the great equalizer. We all live under its curse. I don't think modern society knows what to do or what knows what to make of sin the lutheran theologian martin marty once observed that in our culture uh, or that our culture is one in which everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven our culture is one in which everything is permitted and nothing is actually forgiven as a kind of silly example let me introduce exhibit a i don't know if you can see that or not it says song you could probably read that underneath it it says confessional this is a confessional booth. Last fall I was staying at a hotel here in Austin uh, and this was in the middle of the hotel lobby. Maybe you've seen it at this hotel. Um, so I kept walking by it and I was so confused, curious, what is this doing here? I asked the concierge. I said, you know, I keep walking by this, what is this, how does this work? And she said, it's a confessional. Thank you, that is enlightening. I see that, I can, I can read that it says that. I'm actually a minister. Which as you can imagine, really impressed her. <laughs> I said, I'm just kind of surprised to see it here. I'm familiar with what confessionals are. She shot me a look that said, okay, aren't you a minister? Like, why are you asking me about the confessional? But then graciously, she said, that anyone can walk into this confessional and make a confession. And that confession is recorded and then sent to a local musician. And that musician decides whether or not that confession is worthy to write a song about it. And if it is worthy, they send you a vinyl record of that song. So I said, let me get this straight. I walk into that confessional, and I confess to something that I've done that I am ashamed of, that I don't want anyone to know about, and you're telling me it is, A, recorded, and then sent to someone who is going to judge whether or not it is a good confession? And if it is, I get a vinyl? And ignoring the sarcasm in my voice completely, she said, yep. Again, it's a silly example, but I keep coming back to this line from Martin Marty that everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. I don't share that story as a, a takedown of the godless hotel industry here in Austin or so that we can somehow sit here in our sanctuary and judge the culture out there. This mentality exists with us as well. Sure, we have our prayers of confession, but don't tell me that you're sitting there during the silent confession not counting to 10. Yeah. Are our prayers of confession forming us? Are they forming us? I think we prefer to think of ourselves and others that we know as basically good. It's basically good until someone does something that we think is wrong. And then, eh, how do we forgive them? Where does forgiveness even come from? Scripture gives us a different picture. I like how uh, the English writer Francis Bufford defines sin as the human propensity to mess things up. The human propensity to mess things up. That makes sense to me. On a personal level, it makes sense to me on a kind of cultural level as I look out there at the world. It's almost like we can't help ourselves. I think that modern people like us struggle with this concept of sin because when we hear that human beings are, uh, have this propensity to mess things up and as a result we might be liable to divine judgment, what we really hear is it is right to judge other people for their sins. <laughs> instead of having compassion on them. Or we hear something like uh, accepting that I am a sinner means that I'm incapable of doing anything good. Neither of these are very good options, are they? There was an article published a few years ago in the New York Times entitled Raising Children Without the Concept of Sin, which was written by someone with different children than I have. It was a very personal essay uh, written from the perspective of a woman whose childhood was dominated by this notion of sin. Maybe you can relate to that. Here's what she said. Sin was the inflexible yardstick by which I was measured. Actions, words, even thoughts weren't safe from scrutiny. The list of sinful offenses seemed infinite. Listening to secular music or watching secular television, saying gosh or darn or geez. God was a megaphone bleeding in my head. You're bad. You're bad. You're bad. Maybe you've had a similar experience. Maybe hearing the word sin brings up shame, brings up guilt, or makes you feel like you are just deeply unworthy. The inflexible yardstick. Maybe you, too, want to do away with the concept of sin. Or maybe you just notice your own reluctance at using the word. I sympathize deeply with this woman's experience, to tell you the truth. I was raised in a similar kind of Christian community in which it seemed the only goal was avoiding sinfulness. And really, that meant avoiding the appearance of sinfulness. I have joked before that it was so intense, it was so intense that I literally grew up thinking Southern Baptists were liberals. Imagine my surprise. I thought a lot about this essay uh, since reading it. The author suggests that instead of teaching her kids, her, her children about sin, that she will teach them to be good instead. She will teach them to fight injustice and equality, to uh, give, people, give to people who are in need, to stand up to bullies, uh, to be an engaged citizen of the world. All good things. Things that my wife is teaching my children. <laughs> and that I hope to teach them at some point. And it's tempting for me to think that the most important thing I can do as a, as a father is to teach my sons to be good. But here's the thing, if I only teach my sons to be good, which my five-year-old is fighting, <laughs> they won't know how to understand or to cope with, I think, their failures. Which means that they will either be constantly frustrated with themselves for, uh, because they cannot be good all of the time or, I think even worse, they will get really good at pretending to be good all of the time. It also means that they won't know how to make sense uh, of the harm or damage done in the world uh, and to them by others. If we remove sin from our lives, how do we make sense of the war in Ukraine right now? How do we make sense of racism? How do we make sense of abuse? How do we make sense of all the ways, the little ways, day in, day out, that we hurt each other because of jealousy and greed and anger? Sin gives us a a moral vocabulary to distinguish between right and wrong, good and evil, injustice and justice, but it does more than that too, right? Recognizing and naming sin is what opens us up to grace without which we would be left only with self-righteousness and condemnation. As Tish Warren wrote recently, accepting that we are sinners does not mean that we are left to stew in guilt or shame. We aren't just sinners. We are sinners who can ask for mercy and truly believe that we can receive it. We aren't just sinners. We are sinners who can ask for mercy, which brings us to the parable that Jesus tells. A certain man has a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he comes to it looking for figs, and he finds none. So he says to his gardener, Three years, three years I've been trying to get figs from this tree, and it hasn't produced even one. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? The gardener says to him, Let it be. Let it be let it alone for one more year. Let me dig around it, let me fertilize it, let me put some manure on it, and let's see what happens. If it bears fruit next year, trust me, it will have been worth it. And if not, you can cut it down then. I love this parable. It's a promise that no matter how little we produce, no matter how hindered our spiritual growth might be by the effects Of sin in our lives God will always offer mercy when the gardener uh, who is the Christ figure in this story tells the landowner to let it alone he says sir let it alone the literal translation from the Greek is Lord forgive it sound familiar It is the same word that Jesus utters from the cross when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. As Robert Capon put it, the world lives, you and I live as the fig tree lives under the rubric of forgiveness. Under the rubric of forgiveness. The problem is that we are hell-bent on believing otherwise. And if you don't believe me, ask yourself as you're leaving today how hard it is to accept that this parable doesn't leave us with a spiritual practice. It doesn't leave us with a strategy for spiritual improvement or spiritual growth. It leaves us only with a promise and a choice to believe it. Everything that is not of faith is sin. The Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, everything that is not of faith is sin, which is difficult to accept at first. Until you realize that what this means is that the New Testament sets up virtue, or it's not that the New Testament sets up virtue as opposed to sin, but faith. Which is really, really good news to people like us. People who have the propensity to mess things up because we will mess even virtue up. If you've ever done any the right thing for the wrong reason, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We are saved by grace. That is what this parable leaves us with. Like the fig tree, we do nothing, and frankly, we deserve nothing. As Capon puts it, it is all absolutely and without qualification, one huge, hilarious gift. Jesus tells us that the gardener assures the landowner that he will put manure on the roots of the tree to feed it, which I think is one of the most striking and, frankly, the weirdest reference to Jesus' death and resurrection in all of the Gospels. But the point is clear. That which is dead and rotting gives way to something new and alive. My friends, as long as Jesus Christ's death and resurrection feed our roots, we will never be cut down. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.